welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR. And this week I'm talking about the war of words that is erupting between Turkey and Germany. Tempers are fraying in Berlin and Ankara. Nazi-era analogies are being thrown around. There's lots of heated talk about freedom of speech and human rights. And the bilateral relationship between these two countries and potentially between Turkey and the European Union are very much in the balance. To help us make sense of this discussion, I'm joined by Asla Aydin Tashbash, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR based in Istanbul, and Almut Müller, another senior policy fellow at ECFR based in Berlin. Our discussion looks at three of the big things which are at stake here. Firstly, how this spat is affecting domestic politics in Turkey and in Berlin. Secondly, how it will affect the refugee deal between these two countries. And thirdly, what it means for the wider, longer EU relationship with Turkey and whether the accession process can continue. So Asla, why don't you give us the background to this spat which has developed between Germany and Turkey? Hi, Mark. This all started with Bekir Bozdağ, Turkish Minister of Justice, wanted to speak, hold a rally in uh, Germany. German authorities, local authorities, I believe, uh, said uh, the rally cannot be held because there was not enough room in the parking lot. Of course, this quickly, very quickly became uh, a domestic uh, topic in Turkey. In fact, something that uh, Turkish president was able to use in his own rallies here, accusing German authorities of preventing free speech of Turkish officials. And it's almost proving to be the perfect election rally topic that uh, AKP needed at a time when the vote, the yes and no vote in the uh, in the uh, referendum, according to polls, seem evenly split. And I do think that the government does uh, feel the need uh, to galvanize Turkish nationalists and nationalists uh, more, at least, around a yes vote. And uh, this is almost proving to be a perfect topic. The idea that is being pushed is uh, has been since the uh, coup, uh, coup attempt in in Turkey, the sort of overarching theme uh, has been, you know, the West is not really with Turkish democracy. And I think now this is a continuation of that. So, Almut, how does the dispute look from Berlin? Well, in Berlin, it is uh, clearly making the headlines at the moment. Uh, we have had the German chancellor in parliament this morning with an official government declaration before heading to the European Council in Brussels. Um, we had the Turkish foreign minister um, meeting with the German foreign minister, Sigmar Gabriel, so a very high-level visit. And um, Germans are, of course, uh, listening um, to what the chancellor has to say and ex is expecting a stance from the government on uh, questions that are related to uh, fundamental values, um, because these issues are so much on the agenda already with all the developments in Europe, in the United States. And Chancellor Merkel made it clear that for Germany there are red lines, that it was clearly um, unacceptable. But she also made it very uh, clear that Germany had an interest in cooperating with a Turkey that is um, 
interested in keeping uh, what is, as Asla pointed out, a very deep uh, relationship. And um, this is the balancing act that she's doing at this point in time, because she knows she is communicating to various arenas at the moment. She is communicating to the Turks in uh, Germany. Um, she is communicating to the Germans who want to hear the chancellor taking strong stances. She is communicating to Europe and the rest of the world over the question of where is Germany headed with regard um, to uh, German-Turkish relations. So it's not easy for her. Yeah, but basically from what the two of you said, it sounds like there are kind of three main threads here which we could go down into. Firstly, what's happening on domestic politics in Turkey and in Germany. Secondly, whether the refugee deal gets affected. And then the third thing is is what the long-term EU-Turkey relationship is and whether the accession process is going to be uh, formally uh, set aside. So maybe we can... um, sort of try and disentangle them a bit more i think um it would be helpful maybe to do a bit more uh prognosticating on the outcome of the referendum and maybe asla can tell us whether you think that the german other will be enough to bring the turkish people behind uh the 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 president and uh, and will be enough to get him over the the limit so that he, he passes this referendum? Mark, it's not clear that the controversy with Germany is going to be enough to actually uh, galvanize more of a yes vote, to gather people around uh, the yes vote. It's difficult to tell, given how uh, unpredictable Turkish voting patterns have been and how sort of how much in the wrong the polling agencies were in the past, particularly 2015. But it seems to me, it seems to everybody that the vote is evenly split with a huge chunk of undecideds. Undecideds, I'm talking about almost up to 20%. Even President Erdogan, who is typically a very overconfident politician when it comes to winning elections, even he has acknowledged the the, the strange fact that the undecideds are really high. Now, Germany has a significant Turkish contingency, lots of Tur- over 3 million Tur- Turks live in Germany, Turkish citizens, I should say, because they're not all Turks. But of that, there's about a million and a half, one and a half million Turkish voters. Uh, AKP has been the top party in German elections in the past two elections, followed with a narrow lead by the Kurdish party. And so there will be a sizable no vote from Germany, as well as a sizable yes vote and in an election so tightly projected i think francis do do really matter and why what's your explanation for the tightness of the polling was this something that you expected after the coup or did you think that it would be easy for erdogan to win a majority before the coup uh erdogan did not have enough votes at all for a presidential uh, system referendum in fact he shelved the idea after the coup, of course, and there was a de facto alliance, a de facto coalition with the ultra-nationalists. They're almost like a coalition partner today. And he thought that maybe there's enough votes to push for this grand idea. I think the reason is Turkish voters are not the Turkish voters are not sold out on the idea. And the segment that matters the most is uh, Kurdish voters within AKP. They're not happy about what's happening in the Kurdish situation in the Kurdish areas. 
And also, I have to say, the unconvinced conservative Turks who feel, okay, fine, but Erdogan is running the country in any case. And what happens if Erdogan dies, for example? There's lots of question marks about a system which is very clearly lacking checks and balances. Maybe you could just tell us very briefly what you think happens if uh, he wins and if he loses. In terms of day-to-day politics, Erdogan has been in charge for some time now. So he's actually been using executive powers in a de facto manner, and that will now become part of Turkish constitution. I think the question mark is what will happen in terms of judicial appointments and and basically uh, separation of forces between executive, judiciary, and legislative. And that will clearly, uh, the critics feel, even some critics within AKP, the sort of independence of the judiciary. And despite the problems Turkey is having now, there still are distinct institutions. But after the referendum, if there's a yes vote, the president will be the person that will elect majority of judges in high courts. And he will be in a position to appoint deans. And he will also be in a position to basically designate much of uh, who gets into the parliament by virtue of being also the head of the party. And if he loses? Whether he will have to go for early election or continue business as usual is a big unknown. But my sense is if he loses, there could be a, a sort of a leadership struggle within the ultranationalist party, very important. And there would be more grumblings within AKP, people who are not happy with the country or, or the party, who feel intimidated to speak now, but will be able to after the referendum. Adler, could I ask you how it's very big um, here at the moment as well, and we need to mention it, and that is the arrest of the German journalist of Die Welt, uh, Mr. Yuzel, in Turkey. And um, Merkel is speaking out and other senior politicians here speaking out and saying the situation is unacceptable. We need to have access um, um, and, and support uh, um, him and he needs to be Uh, released and we don't see any evidence. I mean, what is the perspective in, in Turkey on this question at the moment? Almut, it seems to me there isn't one Turkish response. Turkey is a very divided country, very polarized. So there's basically uh, President Erdogan saying Deniz Yücel is actually uh, sympathetic to PKK, is a terrorist and is a German spy and has been held, has been hosted by Germany. And then there's also a group of people who are critical of the government who are uh, speaking out against the arrests and at least uh, have been uh, tweeting on social media with the hashtag free Deniz Yücel. So there is not one but two Turkeys and it's difficult to tell what the overall public perception is. But it seems to me that in this business of arresting journalists, even AKP voters are not entirely comfortable. Okay, maybe just... Um Almut, do you want to tell us briefly um, how useful this is going to be for Angela Merkel in terms of her own re-election prospects? Is this a way for her to reach out to German nationalists and to show that she's not always uh, on the side of, of refugees and Muslims and foreigners? Well, that's not the main issue, I believe, for her. Merkel is clearly worried about the divisions in the Turkish community here in Germany um, um, and the import of conflict into Germany. Germany has had a problem of integrating um, its um, immigrants for quite some time, has started to improve on it. So the country will have to accelerate its efforts um, to integrate communities that um, 
if we look at the Turkish um, living in Germany here, without the right uh, to vote uh, here, but with the right to vote in uh, Turkey, um, are not really part of the system here. And it's interesting to see senior politicians coming out who suggested that Germany needs to revisit uh, the practice of giving dual citizenship rights um, and linking that directly to um, President Erdogan's uh, activities, saying, well, basically, Turks living here need to decide. So this is really major for me. And the second one you're describing, Mark, and that, of course, is, um, you know, the boundaries. Um, you hear a lot of German senior figures um, talking about, and I say this in German, I'll translate it in a second. Wir lassen uns nicht auf der Nase rumtanzen. We will not have people dance on our noses. We will not be fooled. We are a country whose courts provide for freedom of speech. And the courts, this is not a political decision. Um, to um, decide not to have rallies to be held, that's by courts who say for security reasons or others. Um, but there is clear limits to what Germany is willing uh, and able to accommodate as a free country where clearly um, the freedom of speech is respected, but also um, the clear defense of you know, Europe as a place of values is something that is being put forward. And this, I think, for Merkel, yes, that has a domestic dimension as well towards not necessarily nationalists in, in Germany, but towards you know, the common sense of people in this country. You feel, um, you know, we're talking a lot about values. Now um, they're being challenged. We really need to practice them. And the language that Merkel has been adopting also with regard to uh, President Trump where she was quite clearly saying, and she's using the same language with Erdogan now, we want to have good relations with Turkey on the basis of shared values. Turkey wants to be an EU member. Turkey wants uh, to continue a good relationship within NATO. That's also based on uh, values. So, yes, clearly she's directing that also to a constituency here who says, um, well, real politique is one thing, and the Turkey-EU deal on the refugees plays a role, of course, in this. But then uh, we clearly need to be explicit about the boundaries, um, uh, and that is the constitution of this country. So, so let's maybe move on to the, to those two big uh, questions now, uh, briefly from both of you. Be good to hear whether this is just a storm in a teacup or whether it is going to lead to a real escalation on the substance. Do either of you think that the refugee deal is going to be affected by this? I don't think the refugee deal will be affected. I may I may prove to be wrong in the end. What will be affected is Turkey's prospects of EU membership, which are actually quite close to uh, you know zero at this point. But nonetheless, Turkey has been pushing for something called upgraded customs union and hoping to actually keep membership prospects alive by by keeping it in the books, keeping the accession process alive and on paper at least. So that will be a, a struggle if things go on like this. Also, customs union upgrade will be up will will be open to discussion after the referendum. I don't think it's going to be as easy as Turks are hoping to be. What they really want, the government here, is not to have sort of you know human rights criticism and not to have to really worry about Copenhagen criteria anymore and not to have to be accountable to Europe. But they do want to have some type of a strong uh, trade relationship. And I think the trade relationship part of it is increasingly going to be more difficult if the language and the discourse and the sort of the cultural divide, the reality gap is as big as, that it, as it is. 
And what? How does it look from Berlin, Alma, on the on both the the Turkey deal and also the the wider relationship? I share uh, Asli's point about um, not thinking that the refugee deal will be um, affected. There are uh, a whole number of shared interests here um, that clearly play a major role. Merkel is trying to balance uh, also her talk, talking about values on the one hand, but also talking about uh, interests of Germany and Turkey um, in terms of trade, in terms of security cooperation, uh, etc. And uh, and she's trying to communicate that it will will work towards um, better relationship. But if you look at the wider European dimension. I mean, there is a real raw nerve at the moment on the question of values, and we have seen um, major EU countries stepping out ahead of the um, Rome um, summit later this month, celebrating 60 years of European, um, um, you know, the treaties of, of Rome, um, where these countries, Germany, France, uh, Italy, Spain, feel um, something needs to happen. Europe needs to move. Europe needs to uh, show its strength. And part of that strength is to make it clear also to other members in the union that there are limits to behavior. And this is clearly directed at um, countries that um, see the benefits of membership, but don't really want to jump uh, into, um, you know, sharing the values uh, that the union is built on. So I think there is also a dimension where Merkel already is is fighting this battle at various fronts and has made a decision now in the EU to step out, uh, to look for like-minded countries and to really move ahead. And I think this is the wider context that we have to look at here as well. Great. And um, how do you think that the German debate is going to be influenced by other German-speaking countries like Austria that are desperate to suspend the entire accession process? The German, um, Peter Altmaier this morning, um, you know, the head of Merkel's chancellery was very clear saying, well, this is not um, under discussion at the moment. The opening of chapters is not under discussion. There is no real urgency for us to do anything on this year. And of course, the um, Venice Commission report that is due to come out in a few days will be also um, sort of underlining uh, that situation. So there is, from the German perspective, no real need to go into the uh, enlargement narrative again. And this has been a gradual process, which um, we have seen over the past year um, um, since the EU-Turkey deal, that in a way, in the German discourse, there is less and less and less uh, about, um, you know, Turkey's EU uh, um, sort of context, but more and more bilateral uh, interests, um, security interests, interests um, that relate to trying to prevent uh, Turkey slipping further into uh, an authoritarian regime. So we have heard less and less about an EU framework, and this is in the interest of, of Merkel and Tapato, of course, which has always been more skeptical. Nobody is really um, thinking about any form of enlargement at the moment. The EU is, uh, is disintegrating with the United Kingdom leaving. The debate is entirely different. So that is not the major um, major um, battlefront. And I don't think, um, I mean, we're seeing, of course, um, or we hear the voices from Austria, the Austrian foreign minister being a lot more articulate, but um, the, the dynamics here in, in, in Germany are, are different. Okay, maybe just as a last question to both of you, I mean, how do you see this um, thing going forward? How can it, what, what sort of form will an escalation take? Will it just stay as a war of words or are there likely to be um, any consequences that go beyond rhetoric? I doubt we'll, we'll, 
I doubt we'll, uh, I mean, Germany will try and German uh, members of government will try to continue tempering their language and really measure when to respond and when to speak out um, and when just uh, to be quiet. And uh, I think there is no interest in further escalation here. Um, if the situation um, further escalates, what could that look like? Um, it's a very good question. I wouldn't even know what, what, a, what a scenario would be. I think the attempt will be also to place um, this debate at the heart of the European Union again, um, which is what uh, I believe will also be happening in Brussels uh, later today, and to really see um, what it essentially means for relations between um, Turkey and, and the EU, but on a rather sort of... Um, on a level where the Germans are trying to sort of um, uh, moderate. I think Merkel is in a more comfortable position if she was not to take further action and if the storm was was going uh, away, especially in this in this election. And how does it look from Turkey, Asla? Uh, Mark, it's so ironic that when the refugee deal was signed, uh, Germany and in particular Merkel was accused by Turkish intelligentsia and liberals and journalists and whatnot of sort of selling out Turkish democracy, of not speaking out about Turkish violations of Turkish against Turkish democracy, of not, not being critical enough of the government. And today she's hailed as the only person who can speak up to Erdogan by, in fact, Turkish journalists and intelligentsia who feel too stifled in their own free speech. So uh, all this is... is in the way of saying Turkey and Germany are too intertwined and will continue to be too intertwined. And I think neither side can afford to escalate it beyond war of words. So it sounds like the whole thing's just a, a huge storm in uh, a teacup in both Turkey and in Germany, and that we will be coming back to this debate frequently but uh, it's a sort of non-event in terms of the, the bigger relationship. There is one thing we still have to do on this podcast, which is the bookshelf segment. So, Asla, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Unfortunately, what I'm reading is not about Turkey or Germany. It's by Atul Gawande, a New Yorker writer and a surgeon called Being Mortal, about modern healthcare and how trying to become immortal, we're actually driving ourselves crazy, reducing our quality of living, in a, and in some sense, chasing a dream that's impossible to meet. We are all mortals. Wow. So how are you going to beat that, Almut? There is no way. There is no way I can beat that, Asla. I should say I was on my holidays last week, and I did read travel guides about the wonderful island of Sicily, which is just amazing in terms of its its culture and the layers of history that have been um, and the number of people that have been traveling and leaving their marks in this place for the past centuries. And that's just always great. And the book that I took there, I didn't really read because um, Sicily was so beautiful and I enjoyed the spring there that it is still on my shelf. I'm waiting for it. And that is John Morris's Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. I have been to Trieste in the past and this book has been recommended to me as another one that talks about um, the layers and the beauty and the complexity of um, spots in Europe. So that's more um, on on uh, on my shelf at the moment. 
Okay. So we have an absolutely depressing book by a Turk who sits on the Bosphorus and the most cheerful book of in Europe by a German sitting in Berlin. <laughs> so I've been reading a book called After Europe by Ivan Krastev, which is a book which sounds uh, almost as negative as the ones about mortality, which were suggested earlier, but actually ends on a surprisingly positive note by uh, arguing that if the EU manages to get through the massive crises which it's facing at the moment, is the mere act of survival could actually bring about legitimacy for the European project. So that brings this discussion to an end. If you've enjoyed it, please do tweet about it, uh, write about it on your Facebook page or on ours, and give us a review or a ranking on iTunes or SoundCloud, Mixcloud, whatever platform you're using to listen to the podcast on. If you have any comments, feel free to write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Asla Aydin-Tashbash, Anmut Muller, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Bouline Goemin, and our researcher is Ulrike Franke. Thank you.